Well, good morning once again, church. Um, today, we're continuing on in our study in Romans. Uh, we're in week eight. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to uh, chapter three. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 31 this morning uh, will be our passage. Um, and uh, just want to say to those that are joining us in Edgewood, we're glad that you're with us this morning. Those, again, that are joining us online, um, as we're continuing on, in this study, um, as we begin, there's a question um, that Job asks in chapter nine, um, and it's a question that he he is unable to answer. But he's responding to a friend, and he asks this question. He says, "How can a mortal be righteous before God?" And as Job, we know if you know the story of Job, he's he's contending with a lot of. Suffering, a lot of turmoil in his life, and um, and as he's looking at God as his, as his judge, um, in some ways, he he asks this question: How can a mortal be righteous before God? Now there are there are a lot of scripture. There's many scriptures um, on what it is to be righteous that would explain to us what righteousness is. Uh, and we can search that out and come to an understanding of how to act righteous. But there's a difference between acting righteous and being righteous. And that distinction is all the difference in the world. As we look at our text today and we look at what we've learned so far that Paul has outlined so far in our study of Romans, is when it comes to righteousness, we have learned that we are very much so unrighteous. So Job asked his question, to which Paul will answer in our text this morning of how can a mortal be righteous before God? And Paul has spent roughly two chapters, 64 verses if you add them all up, describing how unrighteous we are. And that culminates in chapter 3, verse 10, when he says, none is righteous, no, not one. So Job could not answer this question. The wisest men could not and cannot still answer this question. Only God can answer this question. So in these 11 verses, Paul records the fundamental truths to how we move from being unrighteous to righteous. And that is the difference that, that, that is made in terms of salvation, to be unrighteous and then move to righteous. Leon Moore says of our passage of Scripture this morning, he says that it may be possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. Now, for, for those of us that are not new to church, we've grown up in church, we've, we've read this text many times over, possibly throughout our lives. One of the verses right in the middle of this is a verse we've probably memorized. It's a verse that is used a lot of times to help people walk through salvation and what it means and understand their condition. But many times over, we can read this and miss the depth of what Paul says and the fundamental truth of what Paul says as we would move from unrighteousness to righteousness and how that actually takes place. So I want to read our text together this morning and then pray for us as we continue, as we begin to unpack it. So beginning in Romans chapter 3, in verse 21, Paul says this. He says, but now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God 
and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might become the just, be, He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In verse 27, Then what becomes of our boasting? He asks. It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is, it, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Paul says, by no means. On, con- on the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's play real quick. Lord, thank you for this morning and, uh, and our time together, Lord. I thank you for this passage of Scripture, Lord. I thank you that you've given us the answer to Job's question, Lord. And as we walk through it this morning, I pray that you give us fresh eyes for the believers in the room, Lord, fresh eyes to hear what we already know, to resist the temptation to disregard this because I've heard this before, but to understand a different depth of the gospel, Lord, that you've given. And for the unbeliever in the room, Lord, that they may hear, if not for the first time, Lord, the wonderful truth and the lengths to which you've gone, Lord, to declare us righteous. I pray that you be with us this morning, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So Paul begins here, say begins in verse 21, but he says, but now... So if you've been with us as we've been studying the last several weeks, we've had several weeks of some pretty weighty teaching that's not entirely easy as it pertains to Paul describing the human condition. But Paul, as he begins here in verse 21, he says, but now, that's noonie day in the Greek. And it's a phrase that Paul often uses throughout his epistles, but he uses it as, as, a, as to shift from one theme to the next. As Paul creates this argument for a point that he's going to make, he shifts often by saying, but now. And he says, but, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So there are several things in just these sentences that kind of help us because at face value, you can just read, okay, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Paul has spent a good amount of time talking about the law, how we're all under the law, how we're all condemned and judged by the law. But now he says the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. But this should draw our minds back to chapter 1, verse 17. Paul first introduces this concept. If we look at this these 11 verses as, as the heart of the gospel, it's God's righteousness that is right there at the heart of it. But Paul actually introduces this back in chapter 1, verse 17. I know that's 2, not 17. I don't know why I did that, but if you were confused. <laughs> but um, chapter 1, verse 17, Paul said that, for in it, the gospel, verse 16, but for in it, the righteousness of God, he says, is being revealed. Right? This is a present tense word. 
He's saying it is an ongoing reality that the righteousness of God is revealed. It's happening continuously as we speak. It's being revealed. But, so he sets up this theme, but then he abruptly shifts. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 17, there's a shift between 17 and 18. 17, it's the righteousness of God is revealed. It's an ongoing reality, but then he shifts to 18 and he says what? Now, something different is being revealed as well. And it's not the righteousness of God, but the wrath of God is being revealed. It's an ongoing reality. Two things can happen at once. God's righteousness is revealed, but also his wrath is revealed. And it's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So Paul takes from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. And he lays out how unrighteous and ungodly and how sinful we are. And then he gets to chapter 3, verse 21, and he shifts his theme back. And he says now that the righteousness of God has been not revealed. You can note this. He doesn't say the same word. He doesn't say it's revealed. He says the righteousness of God has now been manifested. That means it's been made known. At this point, there's a difference between, between the present tense being revealed, which is an ongoing process, but now he says it has been manifested or made known. It's the perfect tense. It's pointing to an action in the past that has results that continue on in the future. When he uses this word, when he says it's manifested, but for something to be manifested, that means at some point it had to exist before, yet be concealed. So track with me as Paul explains this. He starts this thing, begins this argument in chapter 1 that the righteousness of God is revealed, but yet at the same time the wrath of God is revealed against unrighteousness. Now he returns back to the original. The righteousness of God is manifested. Something happened in the past that has results that continue on in the future. In the context of what we're talking about, the thing that happened in the past was the death of Jesus. And that has been manifested. Jesus is the manifestation of God's righteousness on this earth. We can begin to see it. It's made known. What was concealed has been made known. And he clarifies this, that it was manifested apart from the law. But then he says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the Jew, recalling who he's writing to, is going to ask this question, how? Where? Where in the law and the prophets has it bared Witness to what you're saying was concealed, but is now made manifest. Which is God's righteousness by the subject of it. But in the next chapter, Paul gives the answer to that question. Where in the law and the prophets did it reveal or bear witness to God's righteousness being made manifest? If you look at chapter 4, Paul opens this argument up in Abraham. Paul's writing to Jews who have the law, they would boast in the law. They would elevate themselves over everyone else on the earth. But here Paul says that the ground is level. What you put your stock in is being revealed. It's manifested in Jesus. And here's the example of how the law bears witness to it in Abraham, who was a purebred Gentile. Back in Genesis, before there were Jews, before there was the nation of Israel, before there was the law, there was a man, Abraham, And God called this man out of Ur of the Chaldeans, 
Leave your home, take your family, everything you have, and you leave. And this man responded to God. And by leaving everything he ever knew, and he left Ur of the Chaldeans, he's doing that by faith. There's no way that a man would hear from God, hey, leave everything you know and go somewhere else. And him doing so, it's his faith. He's putting his faith in the one that told him to go. And then we all know, if you've grown up here and you know your Bible, Genesis 15, 6, says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So where does righteousness come from? It comes from the Lord. It's given by the Lord. Abraham didn't earn it. This was a Gentile. Never had the law. He was devoid of faith, devoid of righteousness, but he was told to go. He put his faith in God and went. Therefore, he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteous. So the law and the prophets bear witness to what Paul is saying here just in Abraham's life. And if you're unfamiliar with your Bible, the law is the first five books of your Bible. The prophets is everything else in the Old Testament. It's the historical books, the wisdom books, Psalms, Proverbs. It's the major and minor prophets. But back again in 117, Paul quotes a minor prophet, Habakkuk 2.4, and he says, the righteous shall live by faith. So he begins to prop up and make these arguments to answer this question of how does a mortal be made righteous before God. I will belay this point after I make it one more time. In verse 22, he reads here, he says, the righteousness of God is through faith in Christ, Jesus Christ, for all who believe. Now track with me. He begins this argument in chapter 1, verse 17, where he says the righteousness of God is revealed. The gospel reveals this righteousness from God and it's a righteousness that is by faith. And then he has this large parenthetical from chapter 1, verse 18 to 320. He says, by the way, you are very unrighteous. We are all unrighteous. And then he ends it here in 22 where he says, the righteousness of God comes through faith, but through faith in something. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ. So the answer to the question right there is, how does a mortal man become righteous? It is through faith in Jesus Christ. It's been revealed. You're unrighteous. You need God's righteousness. And the way you get it is through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the complete gospel, church. And many of us need to resist the urge at this point to say, okay, now I've heard this before. I understand that. I'm unrighteous. I need righteousness. The only way I get it is by putting my faith in Jesus. Cool. Teach me something I don't know. But there's, there's no point at which we, church, come to a point where we don't need the gospel. We don't need to be reminded of that truth, of what took place, of what happened. And Paul unpacks that as we move forward. But there is no distinction. That's what he follows with. The righteousness of God is being revealed. None is righteous, no, not one. We all are unrighteous. We need that righteousness. It's by faith through Jesus. But he says there is no distinction. Remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the Jew who believes they are the chosen ones, better than everyone else. But he says there is no distinction when it comes to unrighteous. There is no distinction when it comes to our need for righteousness. We see in Revelation 7, 9, he says, 
It says, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne, throne and before the Lamb. So we see in the end, everyone, all peoples, all languages, all tongues, all nations, there is no distinction in the end. All will come before the Lamb. But he's saying when it comes to unrighteousness, there is no distinction. There's some common differences in, in Paul's day then. Those were Jew, Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, male, female, among others. But we could add many of the distinctions and differences that we label on people today. In addition to that list, today we see weak, powerful, educated, uneducated, rich, poor, economically developed, economically deprived. We see sophisticated, we see unsophisticated. We see black, white, straight, gay, cisgender, transgender, bisexual, and so on. There are many differences in all of us. Then, as much as there are today, there is, though, no distinction when it comes to the righteousness of God. Paul makes a clear argument in two chapters, in 64 verses, of how unrighteous we all are. Church, we should settle on that truth. Max Anders asked this question. He says, why do none of these distinctives matter to God? Well, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's the truth. That is the pinnacle. That is the truth that Paul has been getting to for weeks as we've taught through this. The truth that Paul is getting to in the bedrock of his argument is that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God of God. All are unrighteous. No one is righteous. No, not one. But we need to resist the urge that's in, within us sometimes to, to prop ourselves up, to try and pr pr promote our own self-righteousness. Because in our arrogance, in our depravity, in our pride, we can elevate ourselves above other people. We can look at all these differences and we can say, this person's not savable because of who they are. Or at worst, what we will try and do is we will try and make them like us so that they become savable. But Paul says, God says, there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. John Stott, he quotes an English bishop, Handley Mule, um, who said, The harlot, the liar, the murderer are short of God's glory, but so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine, and you, a mine and you on the crest of an alp, but you are as little able to touch the stars as they. The great fallacy within those that are on the Alps is they fail to see their real condition. They fail to see that any slightest advantage they believe that they have in behavior over anyone else in no way elevates them or raises them an inch off the ground that they share with the wickedness and the worst of sinners. That's the picture when there's no distinction in all of sin and all fall short of the glory of God. You ever wonder why, um, why God told Moses to remove the sandals from his feet? Because he was standing on hallowed ground, yes, certain. But for Moses, for us, we will not be. He could not be elevated even the thickness of his sandal from the ground with which he was created in the presence of a holy, righteous God. 
even the thickness of our souls is too high for us to claim to be in the presence of God when we stand before Him. It's our unrighteousness sets us low. We are made of dirt. We will return to dirt. God is holy and righteous. We are not. So we're not to elevate ourselves. There's nothing that we do, no merit we have, no goodness we have, no amount of good works or giving away of anything that elevates us off the ground from which we stand and we all stand on the same ground. So all have sinned. That's the aorist tense. That means it's without reference to duration. That is the human condition. And we all fall short, present tense. Again, it's currently ongoing. We're constantly falling short of the glory of God. It's as if we're running a race in which we're always behind. We're running a race that we will never win. But in our pride and our arrogance, we can, we can just go and go and go, run, do, 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 as much as we can to try and catch up, to get to that thing, to reach that glory that we sometimes maybe feel we deserve. And when we feel we deserve that glory, again, it's because something we've done. Most oftentimes, the most difficult man to reach is the self-made man because he doesn't see his need or his condition. I have what I need. Look what I've provided for myself. Why run? I'll walk. But nonetheless, you are constantly behind and you will never catch up. And then in verse 24, from 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here, 24, he says, and though, and are justified. So all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but now they're justified. And they're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So though we've sinned, though we fall short of God's glory, though unrighteous, he says now that we're justified by his grace. And that's as a gift. The word justified there, it's a judicial term meaning to be declared righteous. It's not being made righteous, it's being declared righteous. So that's God declaring someone to be righteous. As an illustration, consider, consider this couple who, um, who's behind on their rent. For whatever reasons they have, for whatever circumstances, whatever happens in, has happened in their life, They've down on their look, but they've fallen behind on their rent. They owe $300 to their landlord. The landlord takes them to court, and he pleads his case. And the couple gives no rebuttal whatsoever. They give no excuse. They give no argument as to why they can't pay this money back. And as the landlord or the plaintiff's attorney wraps up his case. Before the judge drops the gavel, he abruptly leaves the courtroom. Then after some moments, the judge comes back in and he walks over to the plaintiff's attorney and pulls out $300 and hands it to him and says, consider it paid. Did that remove the debt that was owed? Or did it just transfer it? but it was the judge's compassion that prompted him to do that. If he would have ruled on that, that you owe this and you are to give the landlord what is owed, he would be just in his ruling. But in his compassion, he chose, instead of dropping the gavel, to go and to pay the debt that was owed. For whatever reason he had, 
None other than love and compassion for that couple. That is the picture. And upon a transfer of funds from the just to the unjust, the debt was paid. The case was dismissed. The couple was declared righteous or just in the eyes of the court. That is the idea of being justified. It's being declared righteous. But we need to resist what some people say. They kind of twist that word justified and they would say, well, that means that it's justified, never sinned. At best, that's just silliness. But at worst, it's bad theology. Because if sin is removed entirely, what does that mean for the sacrifice? It discounts the worth of the sacrifice that God made. When we put it in terms like that, if sin is completely removed, if it's just as if justified never sinned, why would the judge go pay anything if it removes the penalty, removes the debt entirely? There wouldn't even be in court to begin with. So it doesn't remove it. It's not a removal of sin. Chuck Swindoll explains it this way. I like the way he puts this. He says, after a day of dirty yard work, a hot shower and a bar of soap renders one clean. Then he says, it is tempting to say, oh, it's just as if I had never been dirty. But that would not have adequately conveyed the power and the value of the water and the soap. But better to look in the mirror and say, I was filthy and now I'm clean. Understanding the condition to which you were in gives us clarity to understand what happened in our new state. So this is justified by His grace as a gift. Literally, that's freely. The word means without cause or without reason that we're justified. Everett Harrison says, God finds no reason, no basis in the sinner for declaring him righteous. He must find the cause in himself. That judge, there was no basis, no argument, no rebuttal that was given to cause him to go to his wherever, grab $300 and pay that couple's debt. It was his compassion that found it. God finds no reason, no basis in the sinner. It is grace given as a gift, giving freely for no reason of our own. It is purely on the Lord to do it. It costs us absolutely nothing, but it costs God everything. So it's not a removal of sin, but instead a removal of the guilt or the debt of that sin. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, for it saved a wretch like me, understanding our condition. Now, in justification, it comes through what? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So now what does it mean to be redeemed? Now this is a word that's not going to be lost on the Jew or the Gentile in Paul's day when he talks about redemption. But that word, it's a process whereby a slave's freedom is purchased for a ransom price. So back then, people people couldn't just file bankruptcy. They couldn't go to the government for a loan or or a bailout of some sort to, to keep their things. If someone were to... Get, lose their job or become disabled, that was tragic for a family because they could fall into debt. They couldn't pay what they owed. They could lose land. They could lose their home. They could come, become destitute. And instead of falling into starvation or falling into a debtor's prison, they would go to a wealthy person and they would plead with that wealthy person, 
I will indenture myself to you. I will become your servant. I will become your slave. And that wealthy person would go pay their creditors. Sometimes they would agree on a number of years to which that person would, would serve them to pay off that debt. But there were some masters who were cruel and were wicked and would hopelessly indenture a slave forever. But then also there were some masters who just needed cash. They would go to an auction. They would go somewhere and they would sell this slave. Someone would buy this slave. But in terms of the word redeemed and redemption in the process, what existed was there were uncharacteristically kind or unimaginably kind people who would go to these auctions and would purchase a slave and then set it free. Effectively, that slave would be redeemed. He would be bought back for a price with a view to being let go. That is the picture that Paul is painting since through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The reality is that Paul is getting to is we are all enslaved to sin. Jesus says as much to the Jews when they declared that, that they were no one's slaves. Right? We're the Jews. We're, we're, we're God's people. We're enslaved to no one. And Jesus replies to them in John 8. He says, He answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Paul has contended very clearly that we have all sinned. Jesus would say, because we practice sin, we are slaves to sin. And as slaves to sin, the law of God demands payment. But we are hopelessly unable to pay it. Therefore, we need a Redeemer Jesus Christ. That's good news. Amen? Amen. Now, verse 25, he says, uh, it's redemption through um, that, is, that, is, that is in Christ Jesus. Now, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So you have two things. You have he passed over former sins, but it was to show his righteousness at the present time. We'll come back to that in a second. But Paul answers the question that could be asked here. If, Jesus, if, if God becomes the judge, if he is to be just and righteous, but also he's just letting wicked people go free, if he's just declaring wickedness righteous, how is that righteous? If that judge were to go to that couple... In that particular case, and agree, yes, you owe this man $300. The law says you should pay him, but that judge were to say, you don't have to pay it, you can go free. Where is the justice? There's no justice. That judge would be unrighteous in his ruling. So how is it then, can God be just, but let people go free? Paul explains this, he answered this. Now God is God, and God can really do. It's his prerogative to do what he wants. But in his righteousness, he cannot do anything unrighteous. He cannot sin. God's character is fixed. If God is able to do something unrighteous here and be righteous here and move about however he wills, all of this falls apart. We should all just go home if God is not who he says he is. But God's word says that God is righteous, he is holy, and he is never changing. Therefore, he must judge sin according to the law. So Paul says that God put 
Jesus forward as a propitiation. So what does a propitiation mean? Now track with me as we do this little word study through this particular word. In the Greek, it is hilasterion. Now there is no direct English translation of this word. It's only used twice in the New Testament. But hilasterion. In the ESV, it's rendered propitiation. But in the NIV, it's rendered sacrifice of atonement. Right? The, the Hebrew term, or the related Hebrew term in the Old Testament is uh, kippurim, which the Jews get their word for Yom Kippur. Now, for all the scholars in the room, Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. That is the day in within the law, set within the law, to where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would make a sacrifice on behalf of all the people. Once a year, every year, in order to sacrifice on behalf of the people's sin, he would do this. And on Yom Kippur, the high priest would take a bull and he would sacrifice it on behalf of himself and his family. Then he would take two goats. He'd take two goats before all the people. In Leviticus 16, you can read of this. He takes two goats before all the people and they cast lots to see which goat would be sacrificed and what would happen between the two. And the lot that fell on the goat for the Lord, they would take that goat, they would sacrifice that goat. The high priest would go into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant rested and he would sprinkle the blood on the kaporet. The kaporet was, you could say, the lid over the Ark of the Covenant which housed the law. So the priest, to make atonement for the sin of the people, would sacrifice the goat, sprinkle its blood on the kaporet. The kaporet is the noun derived from the verb kapar, meaning to ransom. Do you see where we're going here? The picture that God sets up here a long time ago, and Paul is unpacking. But he would sprinkle the blood on the kaport. The kaport means the mercy seat, or it's the cover of atonement. It's the place of propitiation. This is the word that the Greek Old Testament translates, hilasterion. So Paul's use of this word in Romans is purposeful so that the people would see and connect what's happening when Jesus, when he says that Jesus is the propitiation. It's the turning back. But it's the turning back of what? Chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. It is always happening. So on Yom Kippur, to settle the sin, to cover the sin of all the people, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies over the mercy seat and would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice to atone, to propitiate, to turn back God's wrath from the people. Now, now Paul says here that Jesus is that propitiation for us. We don't have to year after year after year, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, cover our sin once and for all. Jesus laid down his life. His blood was spilled to make atonement, to propitiate, to turn back God's wrath, not from sinful humanity, but from humanity. He turned God's wrath from sinful, from humanity and placed it squarely on sin. And that sin was placed directly on Jesus. The sacrifice. It's not a removal of sin, but it's a transfer because there was two goats. 
One goat was sacrificed and its blood was shed and sprinkled to atone for sin, to pay the guilt, to pay for the penalty of that sin. The second goat, the, the priest would go outside, place two hands on its head and symbolically transfer the sin of the people on that goat. That goat would be led out into the wilderness and let free. And they called that the scapegoat. So Jesus, for us, Paul uses this term purposefully to drive home the answer of the question of how can God be just and also the justifier? Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. His blood shed pays the penalty of our sin, but also our sin was transferred to him. So that the wrath of God would be turned away from you and I. Free for us, but not without a cost. It is a redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward. Who initiates this? Not anything we did. God put forward this. There is therefore in propitiation and redemption a transfer. A transfer of our sin to Jesus and his righteousness to us. Now he says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. One People in the Old Testament would slanderously accuse God of of not being just, not condemning, not judging the wickedness and the cruelty of people in that day. He was passing over sins. But it was in his divine forbearance. That should take us back to chapter 2. They would presume, the Jews would presume, the moralists would presume on God's kindness and his forbearance, not realizing that it was meant to lead them to repentance. If God were to judge sin the same way back then as he did in Jesus, everyone would be condemned. The Jews, Gentile alike, would be condemned. But it's his divine forbearance that passed over that sin. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be now just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you see the picture? How important that is. The righteousness of God that demanded a payment for sin is demonstrated by his own provision of the payment. It's the judge who leaves and comes back and says, it is paid in full. Now you may go. James M. Boyce, um, he illustrates this with what he calls the salvation triangle. If you have a piece of paper, I want you to write this, write this down. But um, Draw a triangle on a piece of paper or just imagine... Me doing it if you don't have a paper and a pen. If you're at home, grab a paper. But draw a triangle on a piece of paper. At the top of that triangle, write God the Father. On the bottom left, which my right, your left, if you're watching. But on the left, write Jesus. And then on the right side, write Christians. Now I want you to draw an arrow from Jesus up to God, pointing to God, and write Propitiation. So Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. Jesus to God, he's turning God's wrath away from us. Now draw an arrow from Jesus to Christians and write redemption. At the same time, Jesus is redeeming. He has redeemed us from our sin. He has bought us back and he has set us free. So he's the propitiation. He's turning back God's wrath. And he has bought us back and redeemed us. Now draw an arrow from God, from the Father, to the Christian and write justification. So how these three things relate here, because of Jesus as a propitiation, 
satisfies the penalty in God's wrath. Therefore, God declares us righteous and justifies us. And in so doing, Jesus redeems us and buys us back. But now as you look at that on your piece of paper, where are all the arrows pointing? The better question is, is where are the arrows not coming from? There's nothing that we do here. All of this was instigated by God. God put forward Jesus. God had such compassion on you and I that He didn't even withhold His own Son. I'm not going to continue to accept sacrifices of goats that are temporary. These things are temporary. They're not lasting. I'm going to put forward a once and for all sacrifice that is perfect in every way and I'm going to do it by my son and because of his sinless life because of his obedience because of his sacrifice I will turn my wrath away from you and I will put it on him and church in so doing he buys us back slaves to sin slaves to ourselves, our own self-righteousness our own way you know what real hell is in eternity with yourself. Think about it. I pray that one day I realize really the depth of my depravity, my arrogance, my selfishness. If I'm not careful, I'm about me. I don't want to spend eternity with me. That would, that would suck. Forgive me. But God didn't leave us there. He sent his son and he put the entirety of his wrath that has been revealed, being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. And he placed it squarely on his son who willingly shed his blood to be the propitiation to turn that away, to buy us back. And all we had to do was put our faith in it. That's the struggle with the self-made man. What, all I got to do is just humble myself, admit that I'm sinful and I need that and put my faith in it. Yeah, that's all Abraham did. What? You mean leave all that? Yeah, I think I'll go. That's a big step. But it's free. It's given freely. So when we look at that triangle, when we look at where everything points, it points from God to us. Jesus to God obediently going to the cross. Jesus buying us back. But it is all for us. Then Paul turns in verse 27 and he asks this question. A series of rhetorical questions with, with an imaginary person, kind of like he did at the beginning of chapter 3. And he says in 27, what then? Then what becomes of our boasting? If this is true, if we've done absolutely nothing for this, if it was all instigated by God, by Him, for His glory, for our good, what do we have to brag about? He says it is excluded. Brandon actually said this. It's brilliant. He said this is why the natural man hates being justified freely by God's grace. This is why in our pride, in our arrogance, we struggle. people struggle to come to this point because in our natural state, it can't be that easy. But it, in terms of intellectually believing it, it's that simple. But overcoming that hurdle of pride and, and selfishness, he says grace absolutely refuses to recognize his 
imagined merits and gives no place to his pride whatsoever. Amen, amen, amen. Thank you, Lord, for grace that is unchanging, that does not leave any room for me whatsoever. And Paul goes on, he says, by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. Martin Luther at this point, as he's commenting, um, he writes here, he adds in no, but by faith, by the law of faith, and he adds alone. And by Martin, Martin Luther adding that word to this text, by faith alone, that was the spark that ignited the flame of the Protestant Reformation within the church. He would no longer stand. He came to that understanding that it is not by works. There's nothing that he could do. It is by faith alone. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. To the Ephesians, Paul summarizes this well in, two, in, verse two, eight, in, in chapter 2, 8 9. For, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 29, he asks, Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. How foolish is it to boast in something, boast in a gift that the entire world has received. It's the same gift that the entirety of humanity receives and someone's going to brag about getting that gift. All that reveals is an under, a misunderstanding of what that gift actually is. So don't boast in it. In verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. And Martin Luther said this, to summarize this, he says, Through the law, God opens man's eyes so that he sees his helplessness and by faith takes refuge to his mercy and so is healed. The law was given in order that we might seek after grace. Grace was given in order that we might fulfill the law. It was not the fault of the law that it was not fulfilled, but the fault was man's carnal mind. The guilt the law makes manifest in order that we may be healed by divine grace. The law is present to point to our absolute need for a Savior, our spiritual bankruptcy, our need for a Redeemer, to humble our heart so that we may return to Him. When wrapping up 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul asks two questions. He says, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Nothing and none are the answer to those questions. So returning to where we began to Job's question, how can a mortal be righteous before God? It is only when he is declared righteous by a righteous God through the atoning sacrifice of his Son, Jesus Christ. That is the good news. That is the gospel truth. That is the fundamental truth of our belief. Is the only way you and I are made righteous is through a righteous God who declares us righteous and that's through His Son, Jesus Christ. So righteousness and wickedness will always have nothing in common, but righteousness and righteousness will have everything in common. So when we come to belief and we put our faith in Jesus... He transfers His righteousness to us. 
And then we enter into an eternal fellowship with God. All that was broken in the garden is made right in that point. So it is grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that we put on her righteousness and it returns us to that fellowship with the Lord. That's the desire of my heart daily. I pray that it is yours and an understanding daily of our absolute need for this truth to be reminded of it daily of our need for Him. Amen? Amen. Pray for us. Lord, thank You for this morning. Lord, I thank You for the gospel. I thank You for what You instigated, Lord. Or that You have not left us where we're at, Lord. Lord, I thank You that You passed over former sins. So that at the present time, Lord, Your righteousness may be revealed that we may understand, Lord, the lengths to which you went to declare righteous a wicked, ungodly, and unrighteous people. And as we're reminded of that, Lord, I pray that it lies heavy on our heart, Lord, that we would seek to share such a truth with those around us. I pray for those who, who don't know that, who may have heard this for the first time this morning, I pray, Lord, that it captivates, that you captivate their heart. That they're gripped and torn within with the reality of their sinfulness and their utter need for your righteousness. And it is there for them, just as it is with anyone else, Lord who would come to faith in you and believe in you, Lord. And I pray that for them now. I pray that for us today, tomorrow, and the next day. Constantly reminded, Lord, of what you do as your righteousness is continually revealed and as your wrath is continually revealed. May we be those that would reconcile a broken world to you because of what you have done for us. Lord, we love you and we thank you for that, Lord. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.